Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Welcome, everyone. Hi, my name is Bill Peacock, and I'm glad you're here with me on episode 71 of the Liberty Cafe. Now, I've been blessed for, eh, I think it's about a year now, maybe, to be sponsored here on the Liberty Cafe by Texas Scorecard. What a great blessing it is to work with the fine men and women over there who are fighting for liberty each and every day, for your liberty and my liberty as well. And so it's great group over there, texasscorecard.com. I encourage you to go listen to them and join the fight for liberty here in Texas and really across the United States and across the world. So today I want to talk about property rights. There's a new case at the Texas Supreme Court that could have some significant implications for property rights here in Texas. But before I start talking about that, I want to do a little background. So I started working on eminent domain and property rights back in 2005, shortly after I came to work at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I didn't know much about it. It was in my portfolio there, but we hadn't done anything recently on it. And, and, but I'll never forget where I was when I heard about this Kelo decision. Now, I, I realize that a lot of the listeners to the Liberty Cafe may never have heard of the Kelo decision. It was a decision brought down by the Supreme Court again in 2005. It might have been 2006. It was right in that area. And basically, it said that the government can take property from a private property owner and give it to another entity, which is in most cases big, giant, multinational corporations, so that that other corporation can use this other person's private property for whatever they want it to use it for. And somehow that transfer of property is for the a public purpose. And that's what makes it constitutional according to the Kelo decision under the United States Supreme Court, which is still currently law. Now, it's very interesting that the U.S. Supreme Court uses this term public purpose because nowhere in the U.S. Constitution do you ever find the term public purpose. Yes, unfortunately, the U.S. Constitution says that the government can take property for a public use, and we'll get to that more a little bit later, but it never says anything about a public purpose. But the courts, like they often do, they twist language and make it suit whatever they want to suit. They find penumbras and all those kind of things. They want to twist it to their purposes. And so that's what the Supreme Court did in the Kelo case. Now, it's named the Kelo case. is actually uh, Kelo versus New London because Suzette Kelo lived in the city of New London. She had Connecticut. She had finally saved up enough money, bought her dream house, and was living there. But the Pfizer Corporation wanted to come to New London, Connecticut and build a headquarters because, well, among other things, New London, Connecticut was offering a bunch of free property and reduced taxes and all that kind of thing. And so New London just decided to take Suzette Kilo's property. I was blessed with meeting Miss Kilo. I think it was about 2000 and 
11 maybe. I think we had her down to um, the Texas Public Policy Foundation's annual policy orientation, and I moderated a panel with her on it talking about the, the challenges that she faced and some of the problems with eminent domain law. And the the, the big thing, I mean, I, I was sitting in my office when I heard about this, and I just couldn't believe that the government would do something like this. But I thought at least, thank goodness I live in Texas, that could never happen here. Well, unfortunately, as I learned more about the Kelo case, I learned more about Texas law on property rights. And I learned that Texas law was just as bad and allowed the same kind of things that the Supreme Court had allowed in Kelo. Of course, none of this is constitutional, but again, the courts take what they find in the Constitution and twist it to their purposes, and Texas courts and, unfortunately, Texas lawmakers had had done the same thing. So let me just start out with one example from a Supreme Court opinion, and then we'll dig into more as we go through this podcast. So back, in a, and I believe this was in the 1970s, maybe 72, but don't hold me to that. The Texas Supreme Court came out with this case, City of University Park versus Benners. I don't remember all the details of the case, but here's what the court said in that case. Property owners do not acquire a constitutionally protected vested right in property uses. That, that is so important to remember when we're thinking about property rights in Texas. So what the Texas Supreme Court has said, and again, this has nothing to do with the law or the, or the Constitution. This is all case law. They're just making this stuff up as they go along. They look at what the U.S. Constitution says. They look at federal laws, federal court decisions mainly, and then they just make this stuff up, which is because what they said there has no real basis or foundation in Texas law. But again, what they said was property owners do not acquire a constitutionally protected vested right and property uses. So what the Supreme Court is telling us is that we can own a piece of property, but in order to use it anyway, not not just in basic ways, but in any way, we have to get the permission from the government to do that. Now, oftentimes that permission comes in the sense that the government doesn't outwardly prohibit us from doing stuff. But in other cases, they do. For instance, if you live in Austin, you can't build a single-family residence in downtown Austin. Why? Because it's not zoned that way. Same thing is you can't build a little business in most neighborhoods in Austin because it's not zoned that way. It's zoned for single-family residences. And so you have this going on all over the place. So how did Texas respond to the Kelo decision? Well, the legislature stepped right up and started doing something with it. When the case came down, they were in a special session. So they addressed it, and they passed a bill that sort of kind of dealt with it a little bit and improved Texas law a little bit. But you could see even from the beginning of this, the, the vested special interest, particularly cities and counties, local governments, but also oil and gas industry, particularly in the form of pipeline companies, they were fighting any reforms from the very beginning. And you could see that happening. 
So after the, the special session, the legislature came back in 2007 and passed actually a pretty strong bill that did a lot of things. But unfortunately, my former boss and generally a pretty good guy, Rick Perry, governor of Texas at the time, vetoed that bill because of the highway department, Texas, uh, Texas Transportation Commission, and who built all the highways. You know, they were making up all this stuff about the problems with the eminent domain laws, which weren't true. They were lies. But Perry and his staff listened to them, so he vetoed the bill. The legislature didn't give up, came back in 2009 and passed a bill, well, tried to pass a bill that was a watered-down version of what came through in 2007, and but it died. It was killed, couldn't get through the whole process. And the legislature came back in 2011 and finally passed a bill, but it was very much a watered-down version of what had originally been passed and then vetoed by Perry in 2007. And so the, the special interest, you know, there, there was this radical outpouring. People were angry about the Kelo decision, as angry as I've seen folks in a long time from a Supreme Court decision. I think, you know, the, um, the gay marriage bill would be another one where people were outraged. But I, I think the, the outrage was even more so in, on the Kelo decision than it was after the gay what is that, a Obergefell, I think it was, decision. And actually people did something about it. And so it was big enough that the legislature kept after it for six years, finally did something, but that whole time the effort had been watered down by the, the special forces, uh, special interests, excuse me. So what we have today still are problems with property rights in Texas. So let me hit a couple of cases that have happened since the uh, Kelo decision that, that just described that. So the first one up is up in Dallas. So uh, about this time, and I don't have the specific dates in my head, Dallas decided that they wanted to fancify, if you will, Ross Avenue. I'm not from Dallas. I'm a Houston guy originally, live in Austin, live outside of Austin now. But Ross Avenue apparently connects downtown Dallas to the Arts District and along this road. And I've been up there, and I've been to Ross Avenue, and I've talked to some of these people in person and on the phone. But along Ross Avenue were a bunch of auto-related stores, auto body stores, auto sales, used car sales, things like that. And the, the powers that be the elite, if you will, in Dallas, just thought that wasn't a very attractive way to use the property along Ross Avenue because they wanted to have this nice, beautiful boulevard that connect downtown with the Arts District and have it very trendy. And they wanted nice, uh, you know, they wanted Starbucks and nice little retail outlets rather than auto body shops or auto repair shops or used car lots. And some of the neighbors in the neighborhood didn't like what was going on in Ross Avenue either. They they had some houses behind it, and they wanted it all prettified as well, fancified. And so they all gathered, ganged up together, and Dallas passed an order and saying, you can't operate an automobile-related uh, business along Ross Avenue. So this is despite the fact that that uh, group like group families and people like Wood the Woodwards 
Alan Woodward and his family, Woodard, I'm sorry, had owned Woodard Paint and Body Shop and operated on it for like 30 years, something like that, along Ross Avenue. Hinga Mbogo was an immigrant from Kenya who had a 30-year-old automotive repair shop on Ross Avenue as well. They were both told, along with a lot of others, that they have to go out of business or move their business somewhere else. And so after many years of fighting, you know, the Woodwards and Mr. Mboga did fight. Others just closed up shop and moved, but they fought. But after, you know, tens of thousands, in the case of Woodward, he spent $110,000 to keep his, his uh, shop on Ross Avenue. But eventually he was forced out, as was Mr. Mboga, Mbogo, and, and they had to go. Because the Texas Supreme Court has said that the police power, all property, this is what they said, all property is held subject to the valid exercise of the police power of the state. And in this case, the police power of the state goes back to what we learned earlier, is that they can tell us how we want to use our property, and it doesn't matter if we've been using our property for that. They can tell us we can no longer use it for that, and they don't even have to compensate us for it. And that was the case on Dallas's Ross Avenue. Now let's move up to an, another uh, case. It would also happen in the Dallas area. This happened, in fact, in Rollett, Texas. So Rollett was a little town up in the Metroplex. I think it's north of Dallas up there, and it wanted a grocery store. You've probably heard about these uh, food deserts in towns that somebody came up with, and, and there was a food desert in Rollett, Texas. They didn't have a grocery store, and they thought their town wasn't complete without a grocery store. So they started negotiating with this developer, Briarwood, who owned some land up there, to bring in a grocery store. In this case, it was a Sprouts grocery store, and so Rollett gave money, economic development, they gave taxpayer monies in the form of economic development to Briarwood to bring in the Sprouts grocery store. So Sprouts signed a lease with Briarwood to build its store in Rollett. But there was a problem with this that developed over time. Sprouts wanted to have easy access to the customers uh, to a big, I think it was Walmart, that operated not too far away. But because of the way the roads were set up, it would take the customers from the, the big Walmart and the, the shopping center over there, they'd have to go around several bins and turns to get over to the Sprouts grocery store. Sprouts wanted more direct access to that. And they had a clause in their contract with Briarwood that said, if we don't have this direct access, then our rent's going to go down. So Briarwood was faced with losing money. And so they there's a piece of property that had a retail um, operation on it in between the New Sprouts location and the Walmart over here. And so Briarwood went to the owners of that property, KMS Retail, and said, hey, we want access across your property to our property and KMS Retail said, fine, that'll be great. We'll build a driveway across our, op our property. We'll meet up with yours, and here's what we want you to pay for that. Well, Briarwood 
didn't want to pay the going rate for this. So what did they do? Well, they went to the city of Roulette and said, hey, we want this access over there, but it's too expensive. So will you condemn this for us? And Roulette did. And the city of Roulette did. And when I was at TPPF, I filed along with TPPF an amicus brief with the Texas Supreme Court explaining why this had nothing to do with public use. This was about Briarwood and Sprouts wanting to make more money. And in order to make more money, they thought they needed this driveway across KMS property, and they couldn't buy it, so they decided to get the city to take it for eminent domain. Well, the courts, unfortunately, all the way from the district court to the appellate court to the Texas Supreme Court, agreed with the city of Rollett and decided that this was for a public use. It wasn't for conferring a private benefit on Briarwood and Sprouts. So those are two cases that show us the problems with property rights law here in Texas today. It's, it's sad, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's the way things are. So we've got this new case before the Texas Supreme Court today. And it was argued just last week before the Texas Supreme Court. It might have been the week before, um, but very recently. So what it involves is the Havlinka, Havlinka family, which owns 15,000 acres of land in Brazoria County. And they are fighting against HSC Pipeline Partnership, which has taken their land and I think at this point in time has probably built the pipeline across their land. That's the way it always works in these cases is that these companies that assert eminent domain authority can go ahead and take the land and build the pipeline and the only thing that the, uh, the property owner can do is fight it after the fact. And usually uh, it's just a matter of compensation because there's always this for pipeline companies and transmission companies, uh, electric transmission companies and cities and, and counties. There's a presumption of public use, and that's always going to stand in court unless there's some very strong evidence, according to the courts, that, that say otherwise. And and. Most of the times, the courts, as I've already pointed out, just don't pay any attention to the evidence, or, and they ignore it or deny it and let the project go forward. And so I think what's going on here is the Havlinka family is fighting this, and but they've already got the pipeline on their property. So that's the case that was just argued before the, the court. So let me explain to you exactly the facts in this case. So um, so HSC Pipelines has, has built this pipeline across the, the land, and they've claiming it's for a public use. In, in this case, the public use is that, well, in, in all cases, what public use means is that the, the pipeline will be used by the public to transmit a product. So that's what we have to keep in mind as we go through this. So HSC owns this pipeline, has condemned the Havlinka's property, but they don't operate this pipeline. They just own it. Enterprise actually operates the pipeline. Now, it seems that, and the, the facts in the, 
the filings are not exactly clear, but it looks like Enterprise is a partnership in which HSC has apparently has some interest in, some financial interest in. That's the background situation on the ownership. Now, the, the operator, Enterprise, is also the supplier of the propylene that is transmitted through the pipeline. And then Enterprise sells the propylene that goes through the pipeline to a company called Brascom. The propylene is sold to Brascom by Enterprise before the propylene enters the pipeline. So those are kind of the facts behind the case. So what we really have here is a pipeline that is owned by a single entity, in this case HSC, that serves a single seller, which is Enterprise, and a single buyer, which is Brascom. We also have the case that the single seller is the operator of the pipeline and connected financially to the single owner of the pipeline. And finally, that this pipeline is not connected with any other pipeline or used by any other entities to transmit any other products. Those are the facts behind the situation. Single owner, single seller, single buyer. Yet, HSC wants us, and more importantly the courts, to believe and define that this pipeline should be considered a public use. So how could that possibly be? Single owner, single seller, single buyer. Well, this is what they're telling the courts. First, they're telling the courts that it should be a public use because the title to the propylene is transferred from Enterprise to Brascom before it enters the pipeline. So all of a sudden, you don't. it's not a private pipeline anymore. You have two entities involved in the pipeline or maybe three, you have the owner, you have the operator, and then you have the buyer, who's also the seller, and then you have the buyer. So all of a sudden, wow, we got a public pipeline here. At least that's what they're trying to say. And then the second argument they make, and this is the same argument that all these pipelines make in these cases, is that the pipeline is available at some point in the future for someone else to connect to it and start transporting their product through it. Doesn't matter if it's not used that way now. It's just that it might happen in the in the future. So those are the two cases, you know, two facts, two rationales that HSC is using. So what are we to make of this? Well, I don't know. It, it's the best way I can describe all this is that it's theft, and that eminent domain ultimately is theft as well. Property owners in, the, in eminent domain, in this case and others, are, are not only forced to turn over their property to another but usually at far less than market price. And that's exactly what's happening here, right? The, the Havlinkas have sold pipeline e easements across their land multiple times. They've, they sold one to Dow Chemical for $3.4 million and one to Praxair for $3.4 million. Fair market value. Yet, HSC didn't want to pay $3.4 million, and so they went the eminent domain route. The exact same thing happened to Briarwood. When Briarwood tried to condemn KMS property through Rollit because they didn't want to pay fair market value. And so what we have here, again, is theft. The government stepping in, taking property for somebody, giving it to somebody else, or giving its use to somebody else in the case of a pipeline easement, for less than market value. That's theft no matter how you do it, and it just totally and completely violates the Texas and U.S. constitutions. 
So this is very similar to another case, pipeline case that is going to be controlling in some cases. It's the Denbury Green pipeline case where Denbury Green was trying to transmit CO2 from Mississippi to an oil play down in southeast Texas um, and use the CO2 for secondary recovery. And it went, they had to go across the, the land of Mike Latta and Texas Riceland Partners. And they couldn't negotiate a deal, so they just turned themselves into a, even though this was a single-use pipeline owned and operated by the same company, they turned themselves into an eminent domain authority and took the property. Now, in this case, the Supreme Court actually overturned the thing. And so what happened, the condemnation, and so what happened is Texas Riceland Partners actually got fair market value because the pipeline had already been built, just like in this case here. So the bottom line here, I think, when it comes to eminent domain and property rights is that, you know, I've been working for years on reforming eminent domain law, and there's some use to that, but ultimately I've come to the decision that we should just abolish eminent domain authority. Um, it, it, it's constitutional, obviously. It's in the U.S. and Texas constitutions, but, but I don't think it's biblical. I don't think anywhere in the Bible can you find the authority for the government to take private property for public use. It's, it's just not in there. So let me just close by saying if we really care about biblically grounded property rights, which, let me just add, is one of the primary ways we carry out God's commandments to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over it, then we simply need to abolish eminent domain. Thanks again for joining me on episode 71 of the Liberty Cafe, and thanks also to our sponsors, Texas Scorecard. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate this show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.